get into it now. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for uh, redeeming us in Christ and making us to see and hear your word. We pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would continue that work now. Make us to understand your word. Change us by the application of your word. And make us to grow and our love and appreciation for you and our desire to give everything we have, Lord, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I was reading an article recently, and it really stuck with me as well. It was, um, I think it was entitled, Lessons from Winning the Lottery. It was the story of a man who uh, went out one night and bought a lottery ticket. He had the habit of, of doing this. Uh, but, you know, you never know if it's actually going to work out. Normally, it doesn't, if you also have the habit of buying lottery tickets, which I don't expect a whole lot of you do, but if you do, it, it doesn't normally work out. But of course, this time it did. And when it did, he really couldn't believe his eyes. According to the matching numbers in front of him, he was holding a little piece of paper that was worth $10,000. And it felt like magic to him. How could $3 become $10,000? It was crazy, and in his excitement, he, he ran home, he told his roommate what had happened, and they rejoiced together late into the night because it was too late to go and collect the reward at that moment. Um, and so the next morning, they would go and collect his winnings, and in an instant, he would become a far richer man. He would become, he would become a new man. But when morning came, his roommate was out, so he ended up needing to go on his own. But he found another problem when he got there to the lottery collection folks. Uh, when he turned in his ticket, they said uh, that he must have been mistaken. They were very apologetic, but uh, it wasn't actually a winner. So instead of $10,000 like he thought he had, it was, it was actually worth $0. But he knew something was wrong. He had checked that thing a hundred times, as it, you probably would have done as well. He had made sure. And so as he examined it more closely, he began to realize what had happened. It's, it's why he couldn't find his roommate that morning. Somewhere between last night and the morning, his roommate had, had actually snuck out, purchased a replacement ticket, worked hard to match the exact scratching on the original, made the switch, and then ran. So, of course, he shared this uh, discovery with the lottery folks, but they, of course, told him that there was nothing they could do about a hypothetical winning ticket. We can't just take your word for it. And so, uh, with a real deep sense of disappointment and betrayal, he was forced to leave. Now, a few days later, the roommate did show up, not at 
his house, but with the lottery folks. And he was ready to take his turn at collecting the winnings. But it was altogether different experience. Not only did he receive the confirmation that he had a winning ticket, but it wasn't worth just $10,000, but he was informed that his ticket was worth $10 million. And so he couldn't believe his luck. How could this happen to him? How, how smart he was to have gone out in the middle of the night and, and, and worked out this switch. He's a genius. He couldn't believe it. Just $3 was now $10 million. He was going to be a wealthy man, a new man. But the lottery folks also told him that because of the size of the award, they wouldn't be able to just hand over the money. He would have to return the next day and work out some additional details. Well, Apparently, and I, I have run this by a couple of police officers, now ticket switching is not that unusual. And as a result, they have cameras everywhere that you can buy lottery tickets. Did you know that? So, so don't try this at home per se, okay? Um, uh, but when he went the next day to return and collect, the police happened to be there to collect him, and they did. He was charged with grand theft. His roommate was called in, and he received the happy news that he was now a millionaire. And so what's, what's the moral of this uh, exciting story? Well, uh, there could be many. Um, buy lottery tickets, or, or maybe don't buy lottery tickets. Um, be careful who you trust. But for us, it's a story about discovery and a lesson in the crazy lengths that sometimes people go to to acquire treasure. And therefore, it's a story that has a lot in common with our parables. There is likewise here a, a discovery, a crazy response, and a bit of scandal. And so let's look at these in turn and see what Jesus has to teach us. First, the discovery. There's undoubtedly a sense of discovery here. It's, it's captured in that very simple idea that these things were, verse 44 and verse 46, found well, that seems incredibly basic, it's ultra important. You see, for all intents and purposes, until a thing is found or discovered, it doesn't, doesn't really exist. In that way, discovery is like the first domino and nothing else can follow until it falls. It will not affect you. It will not affect anything until it's discovered. Archaeology is a good illustration of this. For instance, uh, many consider the relatively recent discovery of King Tut's tomb to be amongst the most important archaeological discoveries ever found. And yet, before its discovery, it was as if it didn't exist. No one knew about it. No one was searching for it. And so it had a zero-sum impact on the millions of people that it has since affected. And that's the same thing we find in our parable. Who knows how long the treasure had been buried there in the field, or how long the pearl had been sitting there in the storefront. And yet, despite their existence in a technical sense, for the whole duration of that time, it didn't really matter. It was as nothing to anyone but after their discovery, well, then it became something, it became even everything, at least to a couple of them. And that brings us to another critical aspect of the discovery event itself. See, it's not enough that it was simply discovered or that someone knew about it, because in order for it to affect us, we have to know about it personally. That's what our parables are capturing in the difference between the discoverers and the original owners. 
It's that even though the treasures had been discovered by others, since they had yet to be personally discovered by their original owners, they continue just as they had before for them, as, as nothing. And there's something else here. In order for a discovery to impact us, it also has to be valuable to us. For instance, well, perhaps King Tut was, was an exciting um, revelation to some of you. Uh, to others, I'm sure the answer is like, I don't care about this 19-year-old kid that was buried, I, I don't know, 3,000 years ago. That's, that's great, good for him. E- even though you had personally discovered it, you knew about it, it wasn't going to make an impact on your life. And the reason why is because you're just not that into Egyptian archaeology, and, and that's okay for, for some of you. And it's what we see here as well, particularly in the case of the pearl, even though the original owner was a pearl salesman. He knows this pearl is in his inventory. He, he probably has it on display. It's probably a special-looking pearl. But he's trying to offload it, while the discoverer is trying to acquire it. And that tells us that even if both had assigned some measure of value to it, the differences in their perspective or their perception of that value drives them to exactly contrary actions. And that brings us to the last essential aspect of discovery, a discovery anyway that will impact us. We also need to believe or trust that it can deliver that value to us. Our typical responses to commercials capture this point well. How many times have you been presented with products that promise you great value? Probably a lot. I mean, they will uh, take years off your life or um, grow back your hair or, I mean, make you immune to all illnesses. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there. And yet, what do we do with almost all of these promises. Well, we walk on by. And why? Well, because at the root of it, we just don't believe the sales pitch. We don't really trust that they can deliver what they're promising. But of course, that's not what we see here. Instead, it's as if both the laborer, the farmer, whatever you want to call them, and the merchant have such an instinctive conviction that their treasures can deliver what they're promising that they do not, and you could say they cannot walk on by. And so point to their response. What did they do? Well, they responded with radical speed and intensity. Verse 44 says that upon finding it, the man goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And verse 46 says similarly, on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, I'm sure this part has already occurred to you, but but this is part of the, the crazy of this parable. So let's just try to soak it in for a minute. Uh, imagine you're, you're just swinging back on through your neighborhood and you notice that one of your neighbors was putting out a car for sale. Now, you're a car guy, or just pretend that you're a car guy for a minute. And, and, and so you take interest in any car that goes out in the front yard for sale. Uh, but you also know exactly what this car is worth. This is a red 1965 Ferrari 275 GTS convertible in mint condition, okay? And uh, so what do you do? Well, 
For one, you can't quite believe that you're actually seeing one of these cars. There aren't supposed to really be any of these cars in existence anymore. You know how rare it is. You know that the list price for this car is easily over a million dollars, and if it's genuinely in mint condition, it's, it's maybe up to two and a half million dollars. But even more perplexing is that your neighbor has it listed for just $50,000. So what do you do? Well, do you walk right over? Do you write the check and you drive off as fast as you can? Well, well I mean, in real life, you probably don't, right? At such a discovery, all kinds of questions rush into our head. Is this real? Why would he sell it so cheap? And, and who is this neighbor anyway? How did he get it? Is it really his to sell? And of course, is this too good to be true? Why? Well, because it's too good a deal and too big a decision. $50,000 isn't, isn't, isn't nothing. You see, there's supposed to be a tight relationship between the speed of our decision-making and the perceived value or cost it represents. And therefore, normally, the higher the value, the more cautious we approach. And yet here, there's no apparent caution. From a literary perspective, and this is no doubt purposeful, there's hardly even space for a breath between the verbs that we find here, much less a period. In fact, it's as if the goes, sells, and buys of verse 44 and the went, sold, and bought of verse 46 are all just one single action. It's radical. It's radical in its speed, but it, even more is the intensity of the speed or behind the speed. You see, it's one thing to blow a few bucks in the checkout line. We've all done it. Or Starbucks or pick your poison, okay? Um, but according to verse 44 and 46, this is everything they have. Would you do that? Would you, would you ever do that? Have you ever done that? I mean, there's no research there's no reference to comps. There's no checking with advisors. There's not even any uh, negotiation. I mean, maybe you could get this cheaper and keep a lot of the stuff that you have and get the new thing, right? I, I mean, some of you are Dutch, okay? It, and yet here, it's everything they have, i.e., it's more than a car, it's more than a house, it's more than a wife or your future spouse, and it's for just one thing. So what's the point? Well, on the one hand, it's to grasp the contrast between this and normal. If we ever saw this level of speed and intensity in, in normal life, we would normally classify it as just brute foolishness. It's like when the guy walks up to the roulette table and says, put everything on black 36. But in these parables, if there's a fool, it's the ignorant seller's. That ultra-fast, super-intense buyer is the smart one. And why? Well, because they get that there is such a disproportionate value between this treasure and anything that they could offer that everything for this one thing makes sense. It makes absolutely obvious sense. And that way, both the speed and the intensity aren't foolishness, but, but wisdom, obvious wisdom. And that brings us to our final point, the scandal. This is personally the most intriguing to me. I mean, 
I don't know if you can sense it, but despite the cool factor of being uh, lucky enough to discover hidden treasure and then being lucky enough to, to walk off with it, there's, there's also a sense in which this whole thing is motivated by brash self-interest and accomplished by some manner of, at the very least, a, a pretty shady level of cleverness. Isn't that a diplomatic way to put it? A, a pretty shady level of cleverness. I mean, think about it. I mean, good on these guys. They, they discovered the extraordinary value of someone else's property. You've got uh, a gold mine in your yard. But isn't it at least a little odd that they don't even bother to mention that to the original owners before they try to make off with the purchase? Most likely details surrounding these stories make it even worse. For instance, in the case of the field, the discoverer, why is he there, was probably making his discovery as he's working as an employee of the original owner. So it'd be like uh, a miner discovering that 3,000 carat diamond in his work on the company mine, but instead of, say, informing the owner of the discovery, he, verse 44, covered it back up. Why do you do that? Well, probably so that neither the original owner or anybody else would discover it before you could get back and acquire it for yourself. And on that note, consider, too, that it's intentionally indirect. It's an indirect purchase. He's not buying the treasure outright, like, hey, I noticed that treasure that's on your field, the one that I, I covered back over. Um, I'd like to buy that from you. But, but rather, I, I want to buy the field upon which the treasure is hidden and that from the original owner. In normal parlance, this is what we call a con or stealing, right? And it's the same in essence with a pearl. The difference there is simply that the discoverer is an expert in pearls. It means... He knew how much this thing was worth the moment he laid his eyes on it. And he knew that the original owner obviously doesn't know what it's worth. It would be like a professional art curator stumbling across a Picasso at a garage sale. And we hear about these stories, don't we? But the original owner might have assigned some value to it, but if he knew what it was actually worth, he never would have put it out there. But instead of informing the original owner of the great value of the treasure he already owns, again, there's not a word. It's just this sense of how quickly can I make off with this transaction so I can start putting distance between me and you. And, and that all adds up to shady. And so what's the point? Well, for one, the scandal elevates the extraordinary, even impossible value of this thing even further. It's to say that even at the cost of everything they have, or even at the cost of everything they could have, this isn't just a good deal. They haven't found a bargain here, but this is a steal. And it has to be because, you see, the scandal shows us that they shouldn't be able to acquire it, at least not fairly. It's that far beyond their reach. And therefore, their only hope of getting their hands on it is this impossible combination of supernatural luck and extreme-grade cleverness. But even more than these, I think the scandal tells us something quite revealing about self-interest. This is the piece that 
has caused at least some commentators a certain degree of consternation. I mean, isn't there something inherently counter-Christian about self-interest? Aren't we supposed to be instead about self-sacrifice? And the answer, of course, is yes, but it's also no. See, the gospel is about a Savior who gave up everything in order to save others, and Christians are called to do likewise. But at the same time, the ultimate destination for both Jesus and his followers is not everlasting sacrifice, but glory. It's interesting that in just a few chapters later, uh, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 19 that there will be treasures a hundredfold of whatever they sacrifice here on earth. And so what's the meaning of the, as one commentator puts it, pure self-interest that's here? It's that sacrificing everything they have, even everything that they could have, for this single thing is the greatest thing that they could possibly do for themselves. This transaction does not result in a regrettable loss. I had to sacrifice those things, but their greatest possible gain. It's amazing, right? And so, what does this do for us? Well, I would bet that you can, you can sense quite a lot of it. Jesus is giving us a picture here of just how valuable the kingdom of heaven is and how someone in their right mind ought to respond to the possibility of acquiring it. Um, but think about the connections. Firstly, just like the treasure and the pearl, the kingdom of heaven is of such incomparable worth that all the treasure in the world would be far too little to offer an honest trade. It's beyond every man's reach, and therefore its discovery is one that ought to make any open-eyed man weak in the knees. It ought to immediately, immediately propel him to do everything in his power to acquire it, and should he, that treasure should then consume his attention. It should inspire his single-minded devotion without question forever. To put it another way, this one thing ought to become his everything. It ought to become his life, and that, not out of a sense of obligation, but, but joy. It ought to be natural. And so, is that where you're at today? And I think for most of us, maybe all of us, we have to say, not, not quite, not, not at least to the degree that these men seem to be. Perhaps some of you feel like your being here right now is an accident or a mistake. A, a family member or friend drug you in this morning, but you're not a Christian and you don't have any desire to be a Christian. And if that's you, well, Jesus is telling you in this parable that you're missing his kingdom. And that's what you need to take away from this. You're missing his kingdom. It's the message that you don't have to keep on hoping and searching for magic lottery tickets to fall into your lap or trying to build up your own treasure kingdom from the ground up. Because Jesus is offering you something incomparably better. This is his treasure testimony, as it were. And, and it's real, it's ultimate, it's enduring, or it's permanent. But even more amazing is that while it should be impossible for us Every one of us, it should be utterly beyond our grasp. Jesus has gone ahead and purchased it fairly and at full cost. 
for us, for you. And now as its rightful owner, he graciously is inviting you to receive it for free. Question for you is, will you? Will you trust his testimony? Will you receive him? Or will you keep on missing it and walk on by? On the other side, if you're a Christian today, if you have discovered and received his kingdom, then the question for us is, what are we doing with it? Are we rejoicing? Has Christ and his kingdom become our life, our everything? Or rather, has it become an afterthought, or worse, a forgotten thought? Has it become a burden, a begrudging obligation? What are we doing with it respect, with respect to our neighbors? See, one of, one of the greatest marvels after the fact that Christ has made his kingdom free is that there are an unlimited number of passes. To go back to the lottery ticket story, not only does this ticket grant us access to treasure of incomparably more worth than $10 million, but there are sufficient tickets to cover everyone who wants one. And so what are we who know about this treasure and its unlimited availability doing with all these extra tickets? Are we sitting on these things? Are we, are we so comfortable in our complacency that it seems like too much effort or too much work to share this best news in the world, this thing that our neighbor needs more than anything, that we know that our neighbor needs more than anything, that would be of the very greatest benefit to his own self-interest? Well, in each of these, I think we all have to confess that we have, we have done and we are doing too little and so then why? What, what holds us back? Why don't we look more like the discoverers in these parables? Why, why don't we look like those, those folks that Jesus healed and, and even when he told them, don't tell anybody, they can't help themselves. They've got to go tell everybody. Why aren't we filled with an uncontainable level of joy at the happy opportunity the Lord has given us to share this treasure the greatest treasure with others? Well, I think the most obvious answer is that we too are missing the true value of the kingdom. We too, though to an obviously different degree than our non-Christian peers, have failed to exercise faith, belief, or trust in Jesus' testimony about the value of his kingdom, the treasure that awaits the saints of God. And as a result, our lottery ticket and the one we have the opportunity to share with others is of an inconsequential value. Instead of everything, it looks more like $50 to us, and we're just not sure that it's worth disrupting our own life or disrupting theirs to mess around with that. Sad, right? And yet, it also rings true at some level. So how do we grow well, the path to growth here is to discover his kingdom more. That's what we need to take away. We need to discover his kingdom more and more. And as we do, and to the degree that we do, we will quite naturally, automatically, inevitably be caught up in those tumbling verbs of rejoicing, going, and sharing. This is how his kingdom will become our delight, our life, our everything. And so let's 
Let's discover and go. Let's be a people that is about knowing Christ and making him known more and more. And on that note, Harvest, if I could just give you a last word as your farewell pastor on this as a church. Make discovering Christ more your ambition, both personally and corporately. Intentionally strive to be a people where knowing the reality of Christ and his kingdom's worth and the privilege of making him and his works and his promises known is your everything. It's what happens here. I, I've told you this story before, but I, I, was, uh, I felt drawn to the ministry in uh, Bible Belt, West Missouri. There were lots of churches, but very few people knew what they were talking about in those churches. It, it was the blind leading the blind. At least it seemed to be like that. And then I'd come up here and look at all these Christians that were raised in the church from, from birth, that know their Bibles, know the gospel, know their, know their doctrine. And what if, what if they could be mobilized to go out into the world around them? I mean, it would be like an army of pastors. It would be incredible. That's, that's what you have the opportunity to carry forward because this single thing, the great treasure that he has placed in our hands, there's nothing greater, there's nothing that could make it better, and thus sharing it with others is one of the most wonderful privileges God has given us. And so as you consider what the Lord has placed in your hands, love it, enjoy it, and pray that the good Lord would grant it. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty oh, God, abundant, generous God, thank you for the treasure that you have put in our hands through Christ. Thank you for the treasure of Christ, for all his promises, Lord, for the certainty thereof, the permanence of our inheritance. Lord, would you fill us with confidence in Christ? Would you fill us with joy, with exuberance, Lord, so that, so that it overflows, so that we become a people that cannot be contained because of the joy of Christ? That we have to shout to the world, look at Christ. Look at what Christ has done. Look at what Christ is promised. It is certain. It is true. It is awesome. And there's nothing better. Come. Come and receive Christ. Lord, please help us grow. Help us be those people. Help us be that church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond now and um, consider what the Lord has entrusted to us and given to us in Christ, seeing, and can it be that I should gain?